Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. As we continue in our study, working our way through this marvelous little book, last week we took a week off for our Missions Emphasis Weekend, and I, again, we are honored as a church to, um, to participate with so many working around the world, taking the gospel to places where we cannot go or cannot be. And uh, what an important and a great weekend that was. But here we come back to First Peter, a letter written to Christians living in very difficult times. And historically we know that times were about to get much worse for them. And the Holy Spirit working through the Apostle Peter is sending them this little letter to encourage them and to enable them to survive and even to thrive in a hostile world. Before we dig into the study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful again for this morning, for the opportunity to gather together, for the opportunity to be uh, here to worship together, to, to partake of the Lord's table together, and now together to come to your word, here to hear from you. Father, I pray that your spirit would speak to us through your word, that we would listen and that you would use your word to bring about change in us, that we might be more like Jesus. So we ask your blessing on this time and your grace upon this speaker to speak your words. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Most nations have an agreement that when their representatives are in each other's countries, each other's territories, that they have diplomatic immunity, meaning that they cannot be held or charged or imprisoned unless the sending country chooses to waive immunity in their case. Diplomatic immunity serves to ensure that that diplomats are able to to function, to accomplish their, their work without fear of hindrance or reprisals from their host country. However, it's also a policy that is often subject to abuse. Most often the abuse is related to relatively minor offenses, things like parking and traffic violations. But even those little things can add up uh, to substantial things. Uh, I read a few years ago that the police in New York City had estimated that 180 countries owed more than $16 million in parking fines that different delegates had, had owed. I've also read that U.S. citizens and corporations find it very difficult often to collect unpaid debts, things like loans, or child support, or alimony, or even rent. And that some U.S. financial institutions, they will refuse to make loans or issue lines of credit to foreign diplomats or their family members because they have no legal means of ensuring the debts will be repaid. And in some of the very worst abuses of diplomatic immunity, Literally, some diplomats have gotten away with crimes like assault, 
rape, and even murder. Well, we learned in chapter 1 of this little book of 1 Peter that we have a destiny, a home in heaven. And he addresses these, the recipients of the letter and us, by extension, as aliens, as temporary residents here on earth. Earlier in chapter 2, we were informed and reminded that, that they and we are God's chosen people. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. And as such, in our last study, which was verses 11 through 17, we were instructed that we are not to abuse our position here. We are not to behave like royal brats. We are not to behave, in the illustration I was mentioning earlier, like disorderly diplomats. To take advantage of our situation, but rather He called us to live honorably. And that call ended with the commands to submit to all authority, verse 13, to use our freedom well and to use it to serve God, verse 16, and to honor everyone in verse 17. We come now to verse 18 where we pick up today. And it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. He says, Slaves, submit to masters with all respect. Submit to authority and honor everyone, even the authority. Basically, what he's doing is repeating himself from what we saw at the end of last, the lesson last time. Submit to authority. Use your freedom well. And honor everyone, even the authority. The one big difference here is that he specifically singles out a particular group of people and addresses this, these same instructions to this specific group. He says, slaves. Which raises a question with me. Why would he single out here one group of people and of all the people he could single out, why does he pick on slaves? Slaves, obey your masters. Submit to them with all respect. Three reasons I would suggest this morning. The first is this. It was a real life problem. The Bible doesn't just deal in niceties. It doesn't just deal in theories. It deals with realities. And the realities of our life. And slavery was a reality in the Roman world. The Roman world, in fact, the Roman Empire ran upon the labor of slaves. The, the, the thought of the Roman citizens was this. What good is it to rule the world if you work? And so slaves did all the work, basically, of the empire. We mentioned last time that there were over half the population was reputed to be slaves. 
So likely very many of the recipients of this letter were slaves. William Barclay, in his commentary, wrote that there were as many as 60 million slaves throughout the Roman Empire at this time. While most of them did menial labor, most of them did hard labor, there were also many who served as teachers, as musicians, as secretaries, as household managers, even some as doctors and other highly skilled professions. Some of them were indeed mistreated. Some of them were subjected to abuse. But others were well-loved and considered trusted members of Roman families. But the reality is, whatever their position, whether it was good or bad, whether they were a highly skilled professional or a menial worker, the reality is that in Roman law, it was very clear a slave had absolutely no rights. Peter Chrysologus, a bishop in the early church, summed up their situation in this way. Whatever a master does to a slave, undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, or after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. In other words, whatever the master did, the slave had no recourse. Whatever was done, good, bad, accidentally or on purpose, whatever was done, there was no recourse. It was considered judgment, justice, and law. So I think we can imagine if we were there receiving this letter from Peter, and if we were one of those 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and again, undoubtedly, many a good number of these recipients of the letter were. Understanding that in Roman law we have no recourse, some burning questions would be raising up in our mind. Particularly having read here in this letter that we are God's people. We are His property in verse 9 having read in verse 16 that we are free, it would raise some questions in your mind, would it not? And it's not only reading this letter, but perhaps we have read some of the letters of Paul, and they may have I think they may have had them at this time. We know that in Peter's second letter that he mentions to these folks the letters of Paul and understanding that they are acquainted with them. And by the way, one of my favorite lines of Scripture where, where Peter says, and some of the things he writes are hard to understand. We all go, yes! <laughs> he struggles like we do. By the way, Paul has nothing on Peter. We'll get there in a few weeks. Some of the things are hard to understand. But here's the point. If they read what Paul said who in Colossians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, where Paul says that there is neither slave nor free. That in the eyes of God, 
And as well in the church, we are equal. And with those realities, if I were a slave at that time reading this letter, I'd be going, got a question. When you say we are to submit to every, to all authority, to every, every authority in, in, that's been instituted among men, that if we're under it, we need to submit to it. And we are to honor that authority. <laughs> Does that apply to me as a slave? Because I'm free. You just said so. I don't belong to a slave. I belong to God. I'm His people now. Don't we get a pass? Would anybody else have that question or is that just me? I think it would apply to us. So what is a slave supposed to do as God's free people still living in this broken, sinful world as aliens and strangers, as exiles? How are we to live? He says, slaves, submit. Submit to your masters. Wasn't the answer we wanted. But this was a real life situation. And that's the answer. By the way, it wasn't just a real life situation then. I understand that slavery is illegal today in every country of the world. However, in some 90 nations around the world, while it is illegal, it is not a criminal offense. And so in many nations of the world, anti-slavery laws are not enforced very rigorously. And slavery exists today legally, or at least illegally, and tolerated in many countries around the world. Statistics are hard to come by, but estimates of the numbers of people in slavery today range from a few million to 50 million people in slavery today. And may I add to that, many of them are likely our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because among the nations where slavery is tolerated and overlooked, they are also nations which very rigorously persecute Christians. It's not only a real-life problem then, it's a real-life problem today. And so that's one reason it's here in our text this morning, singled out, because it would raise a question with all of us. Does it really mean me? There's a second reason, though, I think it's here. Not only is it here because it's a real-life problem, but it's here because it's the worst-case scenario. I know I've mentioned before in messages that uh, I think every kid is a budding lawyer. They're a natural lawyer. Every kid comes out with all the reasons and excuses why they don't have to do whatever it is you say they have to do or, or whatever. The reality is we are all still kids in that way, aren't we? Any time that something doesn't go our way, we vigorously defend our rights. Any time that there are things that we, there are rules that we don't like, we are quick to be looking for loopholes to find ways that we can get around it. The reality is that we are rebels at heart. And whenever somebody aims the word submit at us, we try to duck. At least I do. We're rebels at heart. 
W.E. Henley was a British poet about 150 years ago. Perhaps his most well-known and often quoted poem is a poem entitled Invictus, which is Latin for unconquered. One line in the poem celebrates my unconquerable soul. Another line says, my head is bloody but unbowed. And a lot of us go, yeah, I get that. My head is bloody but unbowed. Good for you. It ends with the famous lines, I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. Henley was wrong, by the way. He was a militant humanist. He hated the Christian faith. And this poem, if you read it and read it through and read it carefully, what you will notice is it is a defiant cry of a man against God that he will not be conquered by a God. Unfortunately for him, he now knows that there is a God who is the master, who is the captain, who is the judge, and that God is not W.E. Henley. But it is a popular poem because it resonates and it captures the ear of the rebellious human heart. When God calls for us to submit ourselves to authority, we start looking for loopholes. We start looking for other options, ways out. So when he spoke last time in the last se- the previous section and said we are to submit to all authority, all of us are looking for are there are there exceptions and we said well there are a few. And the tendency we all have whenever we come up against an authority or a rule or a decision that we don't like is we go running for the exceptions and the exemptions. And I think this command to slaves is given to all of us as a worst case scenario. That if God's command for submission to authority applies to slaves in a horrendous situation where there is no out and there are no exceptions and there are no exemptions, then certainly it applies to us in our lesser situations. That we are to live as humble people, submissive to authority, giving honor to all men, including those in authority whom we may not like or agree with. Now, as I said last week, this command doesn't preclude us taking available and appropriate steps to get rules changed, to appeal decisions, or to improve our situation. And we must respectfully decline to obey human authority when it contradicts God's specific commands. And I also must point out that this command here does not approve or endorse slavery. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7.1, Were you a bondservant? Were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you can get out of slavery, do so. I'm not saying that you have to stay there if there's a way out. But what this command does is it recognizes that then, as today, there are many people in situations that they are absolutely powerless to change. 
that they are in difficult situations which they cannot or perhaps in some cases should not leave. And so what are they to do? Live godly and submissively where they are. Submit to your masters with all respect. But but, but wait. What if that authority, what if that master, what if they are difficult? What if they are unkind? What if they are unlikable? What if they are unfair? What if they are unjust? What if they are mean? What if they are harsh? What if they are cruel? What if they are violent? What is that slave to do then? Notice again the end of the command. He says, not just to those which are good, but to those which are unjust. The word unjust can be translated harsh, can be translated unreasonable, can be translated cruel. In that case, they are to be subject. They are to submit even to the unjust master. To treat them with all respect. These are difficult words, aren't they? They're difficult for us to hear, and we're not, at least I don't think, any of you are slaves. You may feel like it when you go to work tomorrow. Your boss may think you are. How difficult for those who are in slavery. We say, why in the world then would we do this? Why in the world does God ask this of us and why in the world should we do this? And our text give us, gives us three answers, which we, three reasons which we will quickly look at. Look at verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This, what does this refer to? He said, this is a gracious thing. What is this? You read carefully in the text and the this is suffering. That's a gracious thing? That's a good thing? That word grace, gracious there is the word charis. It can mean a gift. What a crazy thing to say. This suffering, that's a, that's a gift. It's a gracious thing. That's easy for you to say if you're not the one who is under the harsh hand of a cruel master. Why? Notice what he says. When, it's a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. When mindful of God, in other words, when, when the, the servant here cares about God, And because he cares about God, because he wants to honor and obey God, he submits and patiently endures injustice at the hands of a harsh 
and cruel master. Why is it a gift? Well, we go on because it's a gracious thing. It is a commendable thing in the sight of God. There it is. Because of commendation. You see, God sees, He notices, He takes note of the suffering of His people. When those who are His royal priesthood, His holy nation, His beloved children are suffering at the hands of someone unjustly, God notices. And He says, it is commendable. It is worthy of commendation. It is worthy of recognition and worthy of reward. That's what commendation is. Jesus, you might recall, said something very similar over in Matthew chapter 5. We were in the Sermon on the Mount not a, just a few months ago. And um, you recall what He said there in Matthew 5. Blessed, blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? Because there's a blessing that comes with it. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) You may be suffering, but remember, you're headed for heaven. That's forever. Suffering is for a little while. And heaven is coming with rewards. Not only that, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. See, God notices, not only does He notice the reward of His suffering people, He rewards it. He he rewards the suffering of His people. The only thing He says here is there's a warning. Only be careful, He says. He cautions, if if you're lazy and disobedient and uncooperative and rebellious and you break the rules and you're suffering for that, it's of no value to you. It's of no benefit to you. Don't, don't, let your, don't let yourself be suffering because you have a bad attitude, because you're lazy, because you, you're sloppy. Do well. Do good. And if you suffer for that, understand this. Every insult, every hurt, every loss, every blow that you suffer God will repay. He doesn't miss a one. In saying that, He is not at all justifying or exonerating cruelty of a master. What He is saying is to those who have no recourse but to endure, you endure it well and notice and know that God still loves you and God is still concerned about you and God is there with you and He will repay. He will make it all worthwhile. That's good news to those who are suffering. There's a second reason that's here. He moves on to verse 21 to 23. He says, For for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Why should we submit and even endure suffering 
Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to put those up there. When we patiently bear injustice, God rewards. When we do good and suffer for it, God rewards. That was in those verses. But why else should we suffer and submit? Because we're following Jesus. He says, to this you've been called. To what have we been called? To suffer like Jesus. Jesus understands what you suffer. The reality is, brothers and sisters, I can't identify with many of what, with what many of you suffer. I can't identify with what so many of our brothers and sisters around this world are enduring because they follow Jesus. I can't imagine what it is to be a slave suffering unjustly. But Jesus understands it all. He walked that road already. He calls for us to follow His example, it says here. That word example is a word that you know, you just don't know it. In Greek, it's the word underwriting. For those of you who are insurance people, it's not that kind of underwriting. It's not insurance underwriting. It's, it's taken from the schoolroom. And I say you know what it is because most of you, I think, went to school at some point in your life. And at some point in your life, you had this. This is underwriting, where they give you that sheet of paper with the letters little dotted in there for you to go on top of them and trace over them. You see, you overwrite the underwriting as you're learning to write. He says that's what Jesus was. That's what He is to us. And besides being our Savior, He was also a pattern for us. He was the one who set the example. He set the template. What are you to do when you face unjust suffering? What was Jesus' pattern? It says right here in the verses. He committed no sin. He was sinless. He was innocent. It says He was not deceitful. No deceit was found in His mouth. He, didn't, he never lied. He never shaded the truth to make Himself look just a little better. To pad His resume. Some of us have done those kind of things. He did not revile. When, when people insulted Him, He did not return insults. Oh, how easy that is for us to do, isn't it? Nor did He threaten. And if anybody could have made some good threats, Jesus could have. You'll regret that. Tomorrow you'll be walking down the street. Lightning bolt's going to come out of the sky. Boom! And you're going to regret that. Not No lightning bolt for you. It's going to be a piano. <laughs> out of a clear blue sky. He could have made some great threats, but he didn't. He was sinless, not deceitful. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten. What he did was he trusted God who judges justly. What we've just been talking about. God notices. He takes note. And he will reward his faithful children. Jesus set the example. We are to keep our eyes upon him and follow. You know, it says here to walk in his steps. It's that, that concept of you know how it was when you're walking in the snow and you try to walk in somebody else's footprints to land just where they did. That's what we're trying to do with Jesus. 
It's not the way that we usually face adversity and suffering and injustice. We usually respond with anger. We respond with indignation. We respond with retaliation. We respond with insults. We respond with all those things. Follow Jesus' example and leave the results up to Him. Amy Carmichael was a missionary. She served in India from the late 1800s till she died in 1951. Amy Carmichael expressed her struggle as she desired so much to become more like Jesus. She was a prolific author. She wrote this. She said, If in dealing with one who does not respond, I weary of the strain and I slip from the burden, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I have not the patience of my Savior with souls who grow slowly, if I know little of travail till Christ be formed fully in them, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I avoid being plowed under with all that such plowing entails of rough handling, isolation, uncongenial situations, and strange tests, then I know nothing of Calvary love. In other words, put it in Keith Spa's uneloquent way of saying things. If when things get tough, I quit loving, I don't understand Jesus' love at all. If we love people like Jesus, it sometimes is going to be very difficult and painful to love. It's going to cost. Well, lastly, the third reason here why we should submit. Because of commendation. Secondly, because we're following Jesus. He's been there, done that. And asks us to follow in His steps. And thirdly, verses 24 and 25. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Recall Isaiah 53. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Peter was there to see the sufferings of Jesus firsthand. He saw it all. And Peter right now recognizes, you know what? Not only did Jesus suffer well, but awesome things came about through that. Why should we submit because of good results that come from when we suffer well? Jesus' suffering brought good things to us. It accomplished wonderful things for us. Look at what He said here. He took away our sins. He bore our sins. He gave us new life that we might die to sin and live righteously. He gave us a righteous life. He healed us spiritually, mentally, emotionally. We have been reconciled to God. We were strained from God. But now we've been returned to Him in relationship with God now as our shepherd, our provider. 
and our, it says here, overseer. That word overseer means guard. Again, He is our guard. Not one thing ever comes into your life, but that doesn't come through the filter of God's love for you, even when it seems horrendous at the time. It is the loving hand of God allowing you to go through something for a purpose. And that's the second part of that. Just as God used Jesus' suffering to bring about the greatest good ever, so God promises to work through our suffering for good. Romans 8.28 states it very plainly. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Matter of fact, it's actually a direct action. God causes all things to work together for good for those who are the called according to His purpose. See, what He's calling for us to do is to submit. Because for the, when we do rightly, when we endure well, we suffer well. There is reward for that. He pays it back in abundance. We need to endure and submit because we're following Jesus. He set the pattern because God promises that He's working out good things through it. Ultimately, it's trusting God with two significant things. It's trusting that God is sovereign. That there is not a molecule of this universe running out of control of what God is allowing and what God is working. That God is in control of... See, we believe, most of us, that God is in control of everything. Yeah, God is sovereign. I believe that. We believe it until something goes wrong in our life. (laughs) Then we question. He calls us to trust that God is sovereign in everything. And second, to trust not only that God is sovereign, but that God is good. That He will not withhold any good thing from us. And He will not allow us to pass through anything as difficult and as hard as it is, as it may be, unless it's necessary. He's a good God who always keeps His promises. These aren't the words we wanted to hear today, I imagine. Not one of us thought, man, I just want to go and hear about submitting and suffering. But these are the words that are here because it is real life. And this is real world in this sinful world. But we are living here as God's people, as His chosen people in difficult times. And how we need these words for when the difficult days are there. Let's pray. Father, thank You. The challenge for us is putting it into practice. The reality is the challenge we face probably isn't as hard as most of the original readers of this letter faced. I think they faced harder times, more difficult challenges. But still, it's tough for us. Father, we have problems submitting. We have problems having right attitudes. We have problems suffering well when suffering comes. Father, I pray that You'd help us to do it well, to put these principles into practice so that in us You will be glorified, that You will not be dishonored in the world around us because we, we suffer badly. Instead of, instead of handling things well, we are complainers and rebels. 
Instead of living well, living rightly, we rebel against authority. Father, we confess all too often that is our tendency. The Lord changes for our good and for your glory. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.